All right. So, last week, we started looking at that scripture where Thomas was not there when Jesus appeared to the other apostles. And they said, hey, Thomas, Jesus is alive. And he's, yeah, right. Um, not unless I see the wounds that you saw will I believe. And I started the sermon and got through point one and looked at the clock, and it was already about five o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> right? So I thought, you know what? Last week was a one-point sermon, and we're going to finish up the rest of it today. Okay? But let's look at the scripture. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin. See, he had a brother, right? Maybe it was a sister. Could have been a sister, right? Um, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his, uh, in his hands the marks or the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, and I, I love this part because I'm a magician, and I used to be, you're not going to believe this, an escape artist. Yeah. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Ta-da! Right? And said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here and see my hands, and put uh, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, what I said last week was this. I think Thomas has gotten a bad rap over the years. We call him Doubting Thomas and somebody... Who's, who's kind of like an Eeyore, you know, I doubt it, I doubt it, I don't believe. So we, we've kind of pigeonholed him with the term doubting Thomas. I don't know that we should characterize him in such a negative light. Because when we go back to chapter 11, Jesus is ready to go to Jerusalem to raise Lazarus from the dead, and the other apostles say, don't go there, they're going to kill you. And what does Thomas say? So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. I'm willing to die for Jesus, is what he's saying. Okay? So I take his caution about, I want, to, I want to make sure he really did rise from the dead. I take his caution not as being a skeptic, negative doubter, but wanting to make sure he has his facts right so he will then go on and be willing to die. Right? I, I don't want to die for the wrong reason. I want to confirm this. And if it's true, yes, I'm willing to die. So rather than seeing verse 29 as a rebuke, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I, I don't see it as a rebuke of Thomas. I see it as two stages 
in the advancement of the gospel. Stage one, Jesus dies, he raises from the dead, and he shows himself to the apostles. They are witnesses. They themselves will go on and die for their belief in him being raised from the dead. And then stage two, blessed are those who don't see the evidence but believe. Well, how would people believe? Well, the way you believed. You heard the gospel. Generation one, they're witnesses of the evidence, and now you become a believer through the proclamation of the gospel. So, I don't want to call him Doubting Thomas. I want to call him Confirming Thomas. Okay? I I want to make sure he really is back from the dead. And this is part two. Okay? Now, what I'm going to do is point to to three ways God communicates to us to make us into believers. Okay? Three things God uses to make believers. Believers. And the three things are this. He uses evidence. Secondly, he uses the gospel. And thirdly, he actually uses our suffering for the gospel to communicate the gospel. Okay? So, let's take a look at the first one, evidence. Now, last week, we covered seven of these. Now, this is called apologetics. So, Thomas, Thomas said, I'm not going to believe in, unless you give me the evidence. And Jesus gave him the evidence. Here, feel my hands. Okay? So that tells me that one way we communicate the truth of the gospel is by answering hard questions. Now, Jesus gave physical evidence. We, we now give intellectual evidence. And here are the, the questions that I asked, and we answered all these. All right? How do we know God exists? There is an answer. How do we know the Bible hasn't been changed? How do we know Jesus really rose from the dead? What about all the evil and pain in the world? Doesn't that disprove God's existence? How can God send people to hell? How can we believe in miracles? Isn't the Bible full of myths and errors? And we covered all that. But before we move on, I want to cover one more. Number eight. Probably the most important question in our postmodern generation right how can christ be the only way to heaven by postmodern what i mean is kind of the the assumption of our generation throughout the world is nobody can claim that they have found the answer or the truth it's okay to have your truth and for me to have my truth, but once you get out of your lane and you say, I have found the truth, postmodern thought is allergic to that claim that there is a truth or the truth. Okay? Um, my son Josh, you know Josh, he's going to preach in the future, and he says, Dad, I'd like to preach on how to understand postmoderns. I go, great, I'd love to understand you. Um, (laughs) What is going on in there, right? Um, But I think that would be great for 
us older folk, right, to say, wait a minute, what, what is, what is the, the thought pattern of postmodernism? So, so I want to spend some time right now on, on answering the question, how can Christ be the only way? Is it, isn't that a little arrogant for you to walk around saying, Jesus is the only way? Well, let me, let me answer this from several points of view. First of all, realize that it's not just a bunch of arrogant Christians going around saying, we are so awesome, our religion is so awesome, and it's the only way, and your religion stinks. Right? Now, that's what people hear us say, but, but what, the, the reason we would say Christ is the only way is because he made that claim. It's not us in arrogance making that claim. It's us repeating what Jesus said. What did he say? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the one who made this audacious claim that he's the only way to God the Father. Peter said the same thing. Peter, before the Sanhedrin, says, and there is salvation in no one else. You hear that? There's salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So so the Bible, the New Testament, is exclusivistic. There's no way to heaven There's no way to the true God except through Jesus. Okay? It is making that audacious claim. Now, before somebody, maybe somebody's listening saying, boy, I don't like that. Well, let's look at religion logically. Not all religions can all be true at the same time. So, you know, that's what you hear a lot of times. Aren't different religions just different roads that all lead to the same God? That's logically impossible because many different world religions are mutually exclusive in their belief. You go, what do you mean? Well, for example, Buddhism, at least many forms of Buddhism, is atheistic. It's not about finding God. It's about blending into the nothingness of the universe. In fact, the goal isn't paradise. The goal is nothingness. So here's a world religion that doesn't even believe in a personal God. Let's contrast that with Hinduism. There are thousands of gods in Hinduism. Now, can both of these be true? There is no God and there are thousands of gods. It's logically impossible. Okay? Then along comes Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Those are called the monotheistic religions. They believe there is only one God. Now, there can't be no God one God, and many gods. So the claim that all religions lead 
to the same God is just logically impossible. Now, within those three monotheistic religions, Christianity says there is only one God and he exists as three persons. In Judaism, and Islam goes, that's crazy. You guys are crazy. You, you can't have one and three. And we go, we, there's a mystery there. They go, oh, quit playing the mystery card. But realize uh, they're not compatible. Okay? So point number one, it's Jesus making the exclusivistic claim. Point number two, just logically, it can't be true that all roads lead to the same God. Right? Now, I think when a lot of people say, come on, Christianity can't be the only way, they're asking or, or they're struggling with a related but different question. And that related but different question is, is this. Let's say Jesus is the only way. What about those who haven't heard of Jesus? And I've said this before, I'll say it again. I think it's a good question. I don't think it's a, uh, I don't think it's, it's it, now it could be a smokescreen question, but I think it's a legitimate question to ask. How would you answer that? What about those who haven't heard? Okay. Now, first of all, realize Jesus himself said, don't just leave the world as it is. In fact, what are the kids learning downstairs? What's a missionary? Jesus said, go, preach the gospel. Okay, um, do you know on the day of Pentecost it was the first Christian sermon preached by a non by by not Jesus? All right, Peter preached, and on the day of Pentecost there were people from all of these countries hearing his sermon. Three thousand believe in Jesus, and then they go back. Day one, pretty much the Roman Empire has people uh, who've heard the gospel. Then. The apostles, they, uh, they, you know, we, we hear about Paul's travels, but do you know that one of the apostles made it down here to uh, Ethiopia? Apparently, Thomas made it to India. Paul dies in Rome, but some people believe he made it to Spain and then went back to Rome. Um, so by the end of the first century, the gospel was spreading, Okay. But you go, what about Guam? Which might tip over if you put too many people on it. Right? Um, what, what about Australia? What about Geneva? What, did, did the gospel get to them? And is it, is it fair if the gospel didn't get to them? Right? Now let me give you three answers that different theologians might give. Okay? What about those who haven't heard the gospel? Answer number one, too bad, so sad. Right? The, the, there would be some who would say, yeah, you know, they were born in the wrong place at the wrong time, too bad. Okay? Personally, I think it's a little harsh. Okay? Second answer, some people hold to this, they say God will judge them if they respond to the light they have. Okay, um, Kind of like before Christ was born, there was that whole Old Testament time. 
They didn't have the full gospel. Jesus died, was nailed to a cross, put in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, and rose from the dead. Um, But they had been given some revelation. So some people say, well, God will judge those who haven't heard by the revelation they've been given and if they respond to it. Now, that one makes me a bit nervous. Because Jesus didn't say, go into the world and leave it just as it is. He said, go into the world and proclaim the gospel. I hold to this view. That those who respond to the light they've been given, God will get the gospel to them. In other words, I think sometimes we look at that question with a small little God, a, 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 a God who has a communication problem. Oh, he's trying to get the gospel, but ah, they just haven't built the internet there yet. Or they, we, we haven't raised up missionaries and they, they, they aren't going to, uh, they they're going to hell because of a communication problem. And I think we have to step back and look at the sovereignty of God. Um, John 6, 37 says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. In other words, nobody slips through the cracks. Right? Everybody who the Father gives to the Son, are, they're going to come to the Son. Now, we can speculate a little bit here. How will he get the gospel to them? Well, we're told by sending missionaries. But there are the occasional places in the Bible where an angel shows up or somebody has a dream. Okay, God could use supernatural means to communicate the gospel. Now, having said that, I want to reel it in really quick and say, but, but, the message in the Bible and the example in the Bible is that he uses human beings to communicate the gospel. Let me show you this really interesting scenario in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, there's this God-fearing Gentile named Cornelius. And a God-fearer meant he, he followed the God of Israel, but bottom line, as a Gentile, he is not going to get circumcised. Okay? I mean, this whole religion thing has its limits, is what the God-fearers said. Okay? So, God sends an angel to Cornelius. But the angel doesn't tell him the gospel. The angel says, send for a guy, he's staying in a little fishing town called Joppa, send for a guy named Peter, and he has a message for you. So Peter's telling this whole story, and it says, so Peter's speaking, and he, Cornelius, told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, He will declare to you. So an angel is speaking to Cornelius. He, this Peter guy, 
will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and all your household. Isn't that interesting? The angel shows up and he doesn't tell him the message. But he says, send for Peter. Peter's got a message by which you must be saved. He wasn't saved yet. Okay? So, bottom line, um, what about the guy who hasn't heard? I, I think God's got it. Meanwhile, we are to be very concerned with doing our part to get the word out, to send people to speak the gospel. I don't think on Judgment Day anybody's going to say it was unfair. All right? So let's not, let's not take these theor- theories that I've been talking about and get lazy But bottom line, Scripture makes it clear that there is only one way and one name through which we must be saved, Jesus Christ. Is that unfair? I don't think so. I don't think so. All right, so all that is point one that we finally finished from last week. How can can God make believers? One, through evidence. Secondly, through the proclamation of the gospel itself. We go back to verse 29, and this is a, uh, the New Living Translation. You believe because you have seen me, Jesus says. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. In other words, phase one, I'm showing evidence to the apostles. Phase two, I'm going to ascend to heaven. The evidence is disappearing. Now... The gospel itself is what will be used to convert people. Right? You go, well, isn't that a disadvantage? Not if God puts power, miraculous power, in the communication of the gospel. Has he done that? Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You know what this is saying? You possess a message that has miraculous power in the communicating of that message. Now, I know all of us kind of tremble when we think about witnessing to people. But what if you really believed, wait a minute, it's not how clever it is, uh, how, how clever I am. It's that God has chosen to use a message that we can speak and combine it with miraculous power to convert souls. Okay? Um, let me give you an example. In the book of Acts chapter 16, Paul goes to the town of Philippi. And he meets a lady named Lydia. Okay? And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we, uh, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. So in some Gentile Um, cities, there wasn't a synagogue, but the Jews would gather, or the God-fearers would gather by a river, okay? 
And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. I just picture like she had a Minnesota Viking helmet, purple eraser for your paper, grape bubble gum. I, you know, no, she was probably into dyeing things purple, purple cloth. A seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God, so she's a God-fearer. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. As he's speaking the gospel, the Holy Spirit of God is opening her heart. God has chosen to pour power into the gospel message. And we speak it, not calling attention to ourselves, not calling attention to how wonderful we are or entertaining we are or how articulate we are, but just in explaining that. What are we explaining? There is a God. And he is a loving God, and he is a just God. And there's a day of judgment coming. And all of us have fallen short of the standard. We are in trouble. Okay, One way to explain it to little kids. You ever been in trouble? Oh, yeah. You're in trouble with God because you haven't loved him and obeyed him. Well, is there any hope? Yes, God's in God's love. He became a man and took our punishment in our place. He died on a cross to pay for our sin. And he died. That's what we deserve, but he took our punishment. And then he rose up from the dead to show that the payment was accepted and, and he ascended into heaven, but he's real, he's alive, he's His spirit is here right now. Well, how do I get what he did for me? By trusting him. By believing in Jesus. I mean, I I don't earn my way. You can never earn your way. Trust in Jesus and your sins will be wiped out and you'll be forgiven. That's it? Yeah, that's, that's the gospel. As I'm explaining that, who knows? Maybe some of your hearts are being opened right now. Maybe somebody's listening to this on the internet. Um, That's the message that God has chosen to combine with his power to to save souls. Okay? So, yep, it's good to learn apologetics. I kind of think apologetics are fun. Reading books and giving the answers and refuting skeptics. But I wonder sometimes if we who like apologetics maybe spend too much time Defending the gospel as opposed to just proclaiming the gospel? Go out and give it a try. Okay? Go up to somebody in the street and say, Hey, can I try something on you? <laughs> All right, so the, the, the second thing God uses to make believers is the gospel. Last thing he uses suffering. 
Okay, what do I mean by, by, by suffering? Well, remember, Thomas said, let's go also that we may die with him. Um, did Thomas die? Well, he didn't die in Jerusalem. He died in India. In fact, if you remember from, from Easter, all the apostles died except for John. I'm going to tell you something about John next week that's really interesting. Okay? But um, James the apostle was put to death with the sword. Peter was crucified, we think, upside down in Rome. Matthew killed by the sword. Nathaniel went to Asia, was flayed to death by a whip. Andrew crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. Thomas speared as a missionary in India. Matthias stoned and then beheaded. James thrown from the southeast pinnacle of the temple. Paul tortured and beheaded by Emperor Nero. Now, here's the point. The martyrdom of the apostles is part of the evidence that we present when we defend the gospel. Here's the gospel, and by the way, Jesus' followers were all willing to die for their belief in the gospel. So their suffering becomes part of the evidence that we give. But suffering for the gospel is also a God-ordained way to convince people that the gospel is true. Okay? In other words, your willing, your willingness to suffer for the gospel communicates a lot about the gospel. Just as people said, wow, those apostles were willing to die for the gospel, those Christians I know, they seem to be willing to suffer for the gospel. So here's a, here's a question to wrestle with. You know, a lot, of, a lot of young people today are doing what you call deconstructing. They say, yeah, I was raised in an evangelical gospel-preaching church, but I'm not so sure I buy it. Might it be that part of the problem is we have a whole generation of kids who were brought to church and we did the fun games and their parents made sure they went to church. But the kids never saw the parents suffer for the gospel. If church and an event conflicted, you always go to the traveling soccer. And if it's, we're too tired from work, we don't go to this, we don't go to that. In other words, we believe the gospel but when it comes to actually sacrificing some time or losing a job or losing some family for the gospel, nah. But when parents are willing to suffer for the gospel, doesn't that speak a lot louder than if we just talk about the gospel? Soren Kierkegaard 
was a philosopher, and he wrote this. I went to church and sat on a velvet pew. I watched as the sun came shining through the stained glass window. The minister dressed in a velvet, velvet robe opened the gilded golden Bible, marked it with a silk bookmark, and said, If any man will be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, sell what he has, give to the poor, and follow me. Now, one last thought. Didn't I say that about three times ago? <laughs> one last thought. Um, you go, but it hurts if we suffer for the gospel. And there may be scars, maybe scars in my body. There may be scars in my bank account. There may be scars in my schedule. So let's go back to Jesus' scars that he gave as evidence. Isn't it interesting that he was resurrected, fully healed, yet still has scars to his glory? I, I think we will be able, when we, when we meet Jesus to see his scars in his hands and in his side. Now, what about your scars? Okay. I always, I always like to remind people of the scene in, in Jaws where they're in the, the boat and they're showing each other, you know, they, they had a few drinks and they're showing each other their shark scars. I got this one from a tiger shark. And I got this one from a great white. And I got that. So... Um, what about your scars that you have suffering for the gospel? Tim Keller says this. The biblical view of things is resurrection. Not a future that's just a consolation for the life we never had, but a restoration of the life you've always wanted. This means that every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make the eventual, uh, will make the eventual glory and joy even greater. In other words, whatever you suffer here for the, for the gospel in heaven will redound in a greater way to the glory of God. And you get to say, thank you, Lord, that I was able to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Gavin Ortland says, just imagine, what if there was a world in which your deepest pain was not simply ended or forgotten but transformed into glory like the scars on Jesus' resurrected body. Eternal perspective. I want to see as many people in heaven as possible. Is there evidence? Yep, we've got evidence. How can I bring people into, the, into uh, salvation, into heaven? 
the gospel. There's, it's the power of God for salvation. But I might get hurt. Yeah. Those scars were down to the glory of God for eternity. All right, let's pray. Lord, it's amazing that you transform something as ugly as crucifixion into that which saves the world. And Lord, we all like comfort. We all don't like losing friends or being ridiculed or even being physically hurt for the sake of the gospel. But Lord, we're, we're so comfortable in our country while the rest of the world, people die for the sake of the gospel. So Lord, I pray that you would do your work of conviction in our hearts. Give us confidence that there is power in the gospel. Give us boldness to share it. And Lord, even give us scars that will redound to your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.